If you, you would open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me say that I bring you greetings from Western Seminary, which is my delight and privilege and joy to teach, and also from, from Henson Church, where I, where I serve and, and, and covenant with, and, and I know that they have prayed for you in their service this morning already. Hopefully not for any lack of confidence in me, but um, <laughs> nevertheless. The Apostle Paul writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me again briefly? Father, uh, we humbly ask you now that you would bless us, and that you would bless us in, in this way, that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we may behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, Father, bless us to that end. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as as, uh, Evan told you, I I do have six children. We have three um, uh, older children, 17, 16, and 13. We also have uh, three younger children that we have adopted or in the process of adopting. Uh, who are seven, five, and four. And so, so people often ask me, boy, you must really love kids. And I say, no, I love my kids. Uh, not, not necessarily kids in general. Uh, because, it, I, mean, I, I mean, here's the reality. And I hope, uh, it, uh, you might not like to hear this, but it's true, and it's probably true of you. I hope it's true of you. Um, I love my kids more than I love your kids. Right? I mean, there's a particularity to it, and, and it's not because I'm one of those kind of parents, right, who always think my kids are, are perfect and wonderful and, and all that. I, 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 I'm here to tell you they are not. They are not in, by any stretch of the imagination. But what, what makes my kids great, in my eyes, is that they're mine, right? They, they, they belong to me. So, so I, I love my kids, and, and like, like any father, God willing, um, I, I love doing things for my kids. I, I, I delight in, in blessing them. Um, I, I, I often tell my children, especially when they're whining about, you know, the, the, just the horrific labor that Camille and I are, are, are placing upon them, um, I, I, I tell them, you know, you're never going to have it this good. You are never going to have it this good. There is going to be no time in your life except right now where you have two adults whose life mission it is to bless you. 
We, we do not lay awake at night thinking of ways to make your life miserable. I, you might think that, but we actually lay awake at night wondering, praying, discussing how we can grow you up into the best possible people. And, and there is not going to be a period in your life where you have that, like you have it right now. This, you might not believe it, this is as good as it gets. And, 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 of course, they always say, wow, that just changed my mind entirely. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> and then I wake up, right? No, so, so I, I love doing things for my kids, but, but, and, and then there's those times, you know, where, where my kids come to me and they ask me for things. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's, it's like, oh, boy, what, uh, are you my child? Why would you come to me and ask for that? Uh, but, but oftentimes it's, yes. Because I wanted to give you that anyway. And, and, and I love the fact that you would come to me and ask for the very thing that, that, that I want to give you, that I want to do for you. And then there's those rare occasions that, that are there's, it's just the grand slam of parenting where, where one of my children come to me and ask me to do something for their brothers or sister. That is awesome. That is awesome. And you know what? I, I, I think there's something divine in that. I, I, I think in those moments, I'm given just a glimpse of the joy that God the Father has in being your father. That if you are a, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been adopted into God's family, and when you come to him and you ask him for the things that he delights to give you, he says, yes. And when you go on behalf of a brother or sister in Christ and ask him to do something that he would delight to do for your brothers and sisters, he says, yes, yes. And that's what this passage is all about this morning. That's what this passage is all about this morning. If you're following in your notes, you'll see that Paul instructs us on how to pray by praying for the Ephesians. And, and, and I broke it up in the outline for you, and, and there's not a typo there. I think he is asking for the same thing multiple times. That, 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 that he begins his prayer and he ends his prayer reflecting on the greatness and glory of God, that there is absolutely no one like the Lord God. And then in, in, as you work your way in, he, he begins to pray for the presence of God in the life of the Ephesians. And, and it, it kind of focuses in on the middle, where, where he, the, the culmination of his request. This is what it's really all about. He prays that they would know the unknowable and that they would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible. And so, so, so that's the outline that we're going to be following here today. And so, so let's unpack this because it is uh, such an instructive prayer. He begins uh, with this, with this uh, statement. He says, for this reason, for this reason. And, of course, that means that, that there's something he's been talking about beforehand that, that, that literally drives him to his knees in prayer, in thanksgiving, in praise. And, and, and as we look back, we know, just following the argument, that in chapter 3 it begins, for this reason. And so he must have got waylaid a little bit because he's going to come back to that for this reason. So apparently... It's the truths that he discusses in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Ephesians that, that, that are driving him to his knees to pray for the Ephesians. Because uh, the, the central idea of, of, of Ephesians 1 and 2 is, is that these Ephesian Gentiles, who, who at one point in time did not know God, who, who at one point in time uh, were sinners, and they were, by, they were sinners by their actions, they were sinners by their very nature, and, and, and that made them, by nature, objects of God's wrath. 
They were separated from Jesus Christ. They were alienated from the covenant people of God, Israel. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. And and Paul summarizes it this way in chapter 2, that they had no hope. They were without God in the world. But... But because the gospel was preached to them, because God in unmerited mercy, he reached out to them and he saved them. He, he enabled them to repent and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, Paul was able to tell the Ephesians that God is near to them. And, and that presence of God is not a presence to curse. It's not a presence to judge, but it is a presence to bless that, that they, because they are believers in Jesus Christ, they have peace with God. And they have access to God as their Father through the Spirit of God that had been lavished upon them. Because of the gospel, they had been incorporated into the one people of God. And so that's what Paul talks about in the first two chapters. And it literally drives him to his knees as he considers how great this blessing is. All of this great truth leads Paul to pray. And, and, and that would really be a sub-point that I would like you to consider this morning. That great truth leads to great prayer. Great truth leads to great prayer. So if you don't know great truth about God, then, then, then your prayers are by definition going to be deficient. But, but as you come to know the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God, then your prayer life will begin to take off. Great truth leads to great prayer. As, as Paul contemplates the gospel, as he contemplates uh, this great plan of God, he is absolutely compelled to pray for the saints in Ephesus. This, uh, and, and so the very basis, the very basis of this prayer that Paul is going to pray for the Ephesians is the knowledge of what God is doing in the world and what God has done particularly for them. And so I I would go so far as to to say this, that, that without revelation from God, unless God speaks, unless God reveals himself to you, there can be no effective prayer. Why is this? Well, in 1 John chapter 5, I I think the Apostle John explains this. He says, he says this, if you want to flip over to 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. He says this, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that is God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you, did you notice that? That if we ask anything according to God's will, then he hears us. And, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. How do we know the will of God? Well, for us, by reading scripture. So I would, I, I would issue this to you as a challenge. A, a lack of understanding of God's revealed will in Scripture will cripple your relationship with God and your prayer life. Because you have no authority whatsoever to pray for what God has not revealed to be His will. You don't have any authority before God to ask Him for something that is not in His will. 
But if you ask according to his will, he delights to answer your prayers. And so what does that mean? Does that mean you have to be a theologian in order to pray well? Yes. <laughs> yes, you do. That doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. But it, it, but it, it means that you need to know God. I mean, everybody's a theologian, right? Everybody is. The question is, are you faithful or not? Is your theology good or bad? Everybody is a theologian. Everybody needs to know God rightly because he is objective, right? He's other than us. And we can be right about him and we can be wrong about him. And it doesn't matter how pious our motives. It doesn't matter how sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. And that will cripple your prayer life. Great truth leads to great prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So let me pause right here and state what is obvious from this. This prayer that Paul is praying is a distinctly Christian prayer. If you are here this morning and and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not repented and believed the gospel, then you really have no right before God to pray any of this. This is a prayer for God's children, his adopted children. And the unfortunate but absolute reality is that if you are not a follower of Jesus, then you are in the precise place that Paul described of the Ephesian Gentiles before they believed the gospel. That's the reality. But there's hope. There is hope that, that if you repent... If you believe the gospel that you will hear preached this morning, then God will grant to you the right and the privilege to pray everything that this passage instructs. If you are a Christian, I would say this, listen well, because this prayer is for you. And the first thing that you have to realize is the awesome and terrifying privilege of being able to pray to the creator of the cosmos. Notice Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. It's a posture. It matches his heart. It's one of humility. He recognizes that even as he prays to his father, he is praying to the king of kings and lord of lords, the God creator of the universe. And yet... Paul calls him Father. That's a tension that we find all throughout Scripture as God's people address God, is that there is a familiarity that comes because God has reached out and he has grabbed hold of a person, and yet God is absolutely transcendent and holy and awesome and terrifying. And and the Bible holds those things in tension. There should not be any casual familiarity with God. Those who, through Jesus Christ, know God the Father, know, as C.S. Lewis would say, he is not a tame lion. He is terrifying and holy. And yet, he is your Father. And there is intimacy there. What a privilege that is. For the great theologian Garth Brooks sing, I have friends in low places. Christian you have a friend and father 
in the highest place imaginable. The one who delights in being named your father is the God of the universe. And so that's the reason for Paul's humility. It's the majesty of God. He says here, I pray, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. This is a statement of, of God's naming the nations. It stresses his might. It stresses his power and his sovereignty. God is shown here to be supreme over the world. And so God, so, so Paul there, he bows his knees before this one true God, who, this one who is omnipotent, all-powerful. We'll talk about that in a moment. Over all creation, in, including all of the rebellious powers, the, those who seek to thwart his will, those who shake their fist at him, God is still powerful, sovereign over them. There is absolutely no force in heaven or on earth that can sever this line of communication now that Paul has with his own father, God. Because this mighty God is his father. And Paul knows, even as he prays to God, that God will move heaven and earth to answer the faithful prayer of his child. So what is it that Paul prays for? Now we move into the guts of the prayer. He prays for the presence of God. Verses 16 and 17. That, this is what I'm praying, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. As he, he, He's really praying here that that. that that God would be near and present to them. And he prays it in three ways. He, he wants God to strengthen them. He wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith in a deeper measure. And he wants them to be established in the love of Christ. He, he, he prays that, 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 that God would, would actually strengthen the Ephesians. He, he asks that this be done by agency of the Holy Spirit and that it will touch the very core of their being. Of course, that's, that's one of the principal blessings of being a new covenant believer, is it not? That, that God has taken your, the heart of stone that used to characterize you and has replaced it with a heart of flesh. Uh, where, where once you were dead to the things of God, God has now made you alive and given you a heart that is pulsating, beating alive to him. That is, he has given you his own spirit. And Paul says, strengthen them, strengthen them in their inner self. Here it's a, it, it's a contrast with their physical bodies. And, and this shouldn't come as any surprise to any of us who've read about the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul was like on this death march, right? His, his body was just being pummeled. And it, it's like he's falling apart. And at one point in Second Corinthians, he says, my outer man is fallen to pieces. I, I remember one time I walked into a theology class with, with, with Dr. Earl Rodmacher. And, and I said, Dr. Rodmacher, how are you doing today? And, and just kind of a, that was code for, hi, Dr. Rodmacher. Um, and, and he said, to my surprise, Todd, I am fulfilling prophecy. And so, wow. <laughs> he said, my outer man is wasting away. <laughs> but 
my inner man is being renewed day by day. And that's what Paul prays for them. Let me ask you this. When it comes to your prayer life, how much time do you devote to the outer man versus the inner man? I mean, Paul, as I said, I mean, it's, like, it's almost like body pieces are being lopped off as he, as he heads towards Rome, right? He's, he, he's had the 40 lashes minus one. He's been beaten within an inch of his life, and then they stopped unmercifully. And, but yet he keeps getting up, and he goes on and on and on. He doesn't care about his outer body that much. He needs his outer body to get him where he needs to go so he can do the things that he needs to do. But the most important thing for him is that day by day, his inner man is being renewed, and that's what he prays for the Ephesians. And so Paul, who was like this walking corpse most of the time, right? I mean, you've read about everything that Paul endured. Paul would be able to stand up in front of people's scars and all and say, I wish all of you were just like me. And, 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 and all the health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers in America would, be, would say, you've got to be kidding. That's not God's will for your life. And Paul would say, that is God's will for my life, and it's God's will for yours, because my inner man is being renewed day by day, and that is going to last forever. And so I don't want to waste my time praying for the outer man when it's the inner man that is eternal. You're going to get a new body. You're going to get a new body. Now, now, hear me right on this. I'm not saying that it's not legitimate to pray for physical things. We are, we, we're instructed to do that in Scripture. But we're also instructed to have a priority. What is your priority in how you pray for yourself and how you pray for others? I, I, I would ask you to consider this prayer of Paul's where he specifically prays for the inner man of the Ephesians. He asks that Christ would dwell in their lives in some deeper measure in verse 17. And, and, and I think this is basically how they are going to be strengthened through the Spirit. Yes, that the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit would be near to them. It's, and, and, and you might think, well, wait a second. I thought Christ, since I'm a Christian, Christ is already dwelling in my heart. Why would Paul pray that Christ would dwell in the heart of a Christian? He's already there through his spirit. That's what makes you a Christian, isn't it, Paul? And Paul would say, yes, that is what makes you a Christian. And yet, as you grow in faith, you will experience the lordship and the presence of Jesus Christ more and more and more. And, and, and I trust that you have been walking with the Lord for some time, that, that, that that would resonate, that that would be true of you, that you can look back on and you say, I, I know Jesus better now. I, 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 I submit to him more today than I used to. That, that's really what Paul is praying here. He's saying, he who sits enthroned on high, the one whom we sang about earlier, that one who is king of kings and lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to dwell in your heart, but, but not dwell in your heart as some familiar buddy, because the very one who is going to dwell in your heart is enthroned on high. He is almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is authoritative and powerful. Paul is really praying that Jesus Christ would be Lord of you, Lord of the Ephesians, more and more 
and more. But this isn't some tyrant or dictator who comes and dwells in the hearts of, of the Ephesians. It's the one who loves them more than they could possibly know. And so that's why he prays that, that, that they would be established in the love of Christ, that, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. This is not a prayer that they would love others more because Paul knows that, that a Christian, really anybody, but a Christian cannot love others more until they themselves are loved by God. And, and, and of course, it, that, that's the biblical logic throughout, right? We love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Our, our love is not one that we grasp out to God. Our, our love is a response. And Paul is saying, you, oh, you Ephesians, you must be grounded in the love of God. You must know the love of God. You must experience the love of God. He, he's asking God to bestow upon them a, a deeper measure of his love on the believers. Like he, he says in Romans, that, that God's love would be poured into their hearts through the Spirit. And this is important. This is important because a little later in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul's going to give them some really strict and hard ethical commands where the lordship of Jesus Christ is, is, is going to need to be exhibited. But he knows they can't do that until they are freed by the love of God, freed to obey God by the love of God. You know, you were created to be loved by God. And we could go so far as to say that we need to be loved by God. You know, what Paul understands is so true of all of us that, that we spend our time chasing other loves, neglecting the love of the perfect one. We pursue love from those who are imperfect and, and cannot possibly love us the way that the Lord God does. The result is that we chase that love and we chase it in other people and, and, and those people become large to us and they become bigger than God. And as in a book by Ed Welch, it's called When People Are Big, God Is Small and, and that's true. See, what Paul knew is that there is great security, there is great strength in knowing that you are loved by your Father. I mean, you know that from your own experience, right? I, I hope. Perhaps this is not the experience of most of you, but, 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 but it was my experience. I, I, I had a great dad. I had a great dad. And um, I, he loved me. And it was evident to me all the time. I remember um, from Little League to spelling bees to cross-country runs to basketball games or lousy music recitals where I was playing away thinking I was great. And, and my dad was always there. And, and, and I performed for him. And I wasn't very good, but he thought I was great. And it wasn't that he knew that I was great because I was in some objective way great. He thought I was great because I was his kid. And, and, and there was a security in that. You see, and, and that's, that's the way life is. That is the way that life is. There is great security and strength in knowing that you're loved by your dad. But this is what is true of all of you, regardless of what your own fathers, earthly fathers are like. There's even greater security and strength in knowing that you're loved by your heavenly father. Your earthly father, as important as he is, is but a shadow of what God the Father is supposed to be to you. 
Paul heads into the meat of his, the, the main idea of his, of his prayer here. It's, it's right in the middle. He wants them to comprehend the incomprehensible. He wants them to know the unknowable. I mean, how great is the power and love of God? He, 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 he prays basically a bunch of oxymorons, right? That they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And I think he's talking about the power of God here. To comprehend the power of God, which is impossible. And, and, and to know the love of God in Christ to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is a prayer that God will strengthen the readers to understand the full extent of God's power towards them. And before you can grasp the full extent of God's power toward you, you need to know something about the extent of God's power, period. One of my favorite places in Isaiah 40, and let me just recite this with a few comments. God is he's, he's asking some questions of, of the Israelites. And, and he asks them, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has done that? And, and of course, the answer is God. It, it, it's, it's like a rhetorical question. I, I don't know if you've spent any time out in the ocean, but I, I grew up spending my summers on the ocean. We'd bob around out there salmon fishing and and. and and, and bottom fishing and, and things of that nature. And I was always struck by how much water there was in the ocean. Probably because we're just bobbing around on this tiny little boat. There's a lot of water out there in the ocean. But how much water is there out in the ocean really? At least according to God? Yeah, like about that much. About that much. How wide is the universe? I mean, we can't even, I mean our physicists tell us that it's ever expanding. And yet it forever will be about that wide to God. It's about that big. Behold your God. He says, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who, and, and, and then he shifts. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man can show him his counsel? Who can give God good advice? And now that, that is totally rhetorical. Answer, well, me, whenever I pray, right? No, no, no one can. No one can. Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught God knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? He's just piling it on at this point. We're being beaten down. No one, no one. I give up. No one. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted like dust on a scales. I mean, what's a drop in a bucket? What's dust on a scale? It's, it's nothing, right? Nothing. That's what the nations bring to the table. Quite frankly, that's what you bring to the table before God when God is trying to accomplish his will. So you might ask, well, does God even need me? No. Does God love me? Yes. Yes, he does. Just because you bring very little to the table, relatively zero compared to God, it doesn't mean that he does not desire you, that he does not value you, that he does not love you. And, and let's be honest, that is the best possible place to be. Because if, I, if God's love was contingent, if God's love for me was contingent on me bringing something to the table, then I'd be in a pretty tough spot. But the fact is, God is all-sufficient. 
He doesn't need me, and yet he loves me. That's why he can love me unconditionally. It is the self-sufficiency of God that enables him to love unconditionally. There's never going to be a time where God will say, man, you just didn't meet my need. And so it's a little bit tough. I'm a little disappointed right now. He has no needs that you can meet. And yet he loves you. And that puts you in the most stable, secure place possible. That's the love of God. And that's what, or that's the power of God. And that's what God wants us to know. God, Paul wants the, the Ephesians to grasp and to know the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ, to, know, to have a greater knowledge of Christ's vast love. They'll have a profound understanding of it. And, 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 and you might be thinking, well, to know the love of God, of course God loves us, right? Isn't that his job? Isn't that like number one in the job description of God? Because God is love, right? I mean, if, if, if you walk down the street in Vancouver and say, um, can you tell me something about God? I guarantee you people on the street will say, well, God is love. Or at least some of them will. Or I, I would think most of them will. Because that's God's job is to love people, right? Of co- and, and, then, and, and then when it comes to me, I, we, we might think, and I think most people do think, well, of course God loves me. Of course he does. I mean, why wouldn't he? Really? It's, it, it's true, isn't it? It's true. I mean, I'm... I, I, I know I'm not as great as, as Mother Teresa, but I'm probably a little more interesting. And I know I'm not as bad as Hitler. I know I'm not that bad. Well, so, so of course God loves me. He, he accepts my weaknesses, that's right, but, 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 I, but I, I bring something there. And, and so the, the love of God is presumed. But if you read this, you will find that the love of God is never, ever once assumed. In the world, there's this idea, God loves me, like that. In the Bible, it's God loves me. God loves me. It is always treated with reverence and mystery and awe. And, and so, and Paul knows that. He says, never presume on the love of God, but grow in your understanding and your knowledge of it. And, and what is the measure of God's love? How do you know that God loves you? Paul never tires of saying, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the cross. That's the true measure of God's love. Uh, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that, because while you were a rebel, while you were by nature an object of God's wrath, he still poured out his love on you by sending Jesus Christ to do for you what you could not do yourself. He sent Jesus Christ to to suffer the the full price of God's holiness, to suffer the wrath of God that you deserve, but Christ did not, so that when you stand before God, Jesus Christ stands in front of you and says, paid in full. Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God so that you would not have to. And, and, and that doesn't make God some angry, petulant father. This is a Trinitarian act where God's, God out of love sins. The Son, Jesus Christ, goes out of love for you. That is the measure of God's love, and that is the gospel. And if you would repent and believe, then you can be adopted into God's family. 
And so it's for this reason that Paul wrote in Romans 8, because he knew how far God went in his love for them. Paul was able to write this in verse 35 of Romans 8. He says, who who can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's what Paul went through yesterday, right? No, he says in verse 37, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. For, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants them to know that they serve an omnipotent God who is sufficiently capable of keeping all of his people under the umbrella of his vast love. Regardless of the strength of of whatever powers and people will assail them, nothing can sever them from his love. So he goes on, he's now moving towards the end, and and he prays again for the presence of God. He says that, that, that I, I, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. You think, I don't even know what that means, filled with the fullness of God. Isn't that like trying to fill up a Dixie cup with the fullness of the ocean? What is that? It seems silly. Well, it's it's like being saturated with the presence of God. Kind of like when when Solomon was dedicating the temple and the the smoke representing the presence of God filled the temple. And and, and people, it's like they had to leave. They couldn't stay. Just filled it to overflowing saturating it. And that's what, that's what Paul wants. And, and, and Christian, by virtue of your union with Christ, that is true of you and can be more true in greater and greater and greater measure. And that's what Paul prays for. He wants them. He wants Christ to dwell in their hearts to a greater and greater degree. He finishes by, by, by again lapsing into praise. It's a good way to finish a prayer. He praises God for his matchless power and, and he has prayed some hard things that, that they could know the unknowable and they could comprehend the incomprehensible. And then Paul says, well, God's able to do that. God's able to do more than you can possibly ask. In fact, he can do more than you can imagine. He can do that. He's, he's all-powerful. He's all-powerful, and he uses that power for the benefit of his children. This power has been displayed in the resurrection. And if you ever doubt that God can answer your prayer, look at the cross and then look at the empty tomb. If God can raise Jesus Christ, who became a curse on our behalf, he can do anything for you. So where do we go with this? Let me give some things to think on. Number one, Pray, and pray theologically. And, and I don't say, well, I say that because I'm a theology professor, but, um, but as I said before, you're all theologians. Pray well. Pray the Word of God. A, a, a great book that, that has been so helpful to me is by a man named D.A. Carson, and it's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, where he does nothing in the book but analyze the prayers of the apostles for others and then just works through how we should be praying the same thing for others. D. Carson, a call to spiritual reformation. Get it. Uh, so pray, 
pray for others. Isn't it instructive in this prayer that Paul prays for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus? And and so, so let me ask you this. Is this how you pray for others? Pastors and elders, is this how you pray for the members of this church? Do you pray like Paul prays for them? Again, I think I mentioned that D.A. Carson book, didn't I? Pastors and elders, get it if you haven't. I, I, I think I've made my point, haven't I? Do you get the point that I like it and, and I think it would be helpful and you should get it? Okay. All right, good. Demonstrate your love for others. I, I understand this is one of the culminating sermons on the, on the Summer of Love tour or, or series or <laughs> whatever it, it was called, where, where you've been talking about love and the love of God and loving others. Well, as, as Paul, I think, demonstrates here, the, the measure of your love for another, I think, is how often and how well you pray for them. How often and how well you pray for them. And you, you know what's ironic as a Christian is that your love for others will grow as you pray well for them. Consider that. What should you pray for them? Well, pray what Paul prayed. Pray for power. Uh, y- you need this power. Your brothers and sisters need this power in order to resist the evil one, in order to resist the world and the flesh. See, you can't do it on your own. It seems like you have two options when you see your brother and sister struggling. You could give them some sort of phony self-help book, which is like virtually every self-help book out there. Or you could think Christianly, say, man, my brother and sister is weak, just like I am. God is great. My, my brother and sister in Christ is, is absolutely insufficient, but, but God is all-sufficient. Left to his or her own devices, my brother or sister in Christ would be crushed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God is more powerful than all these things. He, his power is, in, is incomparable, and I know that he delights in growing up whoever it is that I'm praying for and granting to them the power to do that which he is calling them to do or to endure or to be. Pray that way. Pray for power for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And pray that they would know the love of God. I mean, why do we care more about the praise of others than the praise of God? The the security of being loved by God is absolutely liberating. Yet so often we're imprisoned by our doubts and fears that stem from the fact that we care more about the fickle affections of others than the steadfast love of God. The love of God is arresting. And as you grow in your knowledge and your foundation in the love of God, as you come to know it, then you will be free to love others. And it will control you, as Paul said. Why was Paul able to endure everything that he did? Not because he loved Christ first and foremost, but because Christ loved him. Yes, he loved Christ but because Christ loved him. And so he, he said in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls me because I've concluded this, that one has died for all. That's the gospel. Pray the gospel for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this church will be blessed. The world will be blessed. And you will be blessed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is an awesome 
thing to be able to bow before you. We come before you as the creator and the God of the universe. And we know that that is terrifying, but we know also that you love us. And you love us as a father who loves his own child. Father, I pray for, for, for this church that, that, that it would grow in their knowledge of your power. And they would grow in their knowledge of your love. And that they would be liberated by that. Father, grow them in their love for you. As they come to understand your love for them. Bless them, please, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.